Oh, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come and ask for our daily bread. And we ask, Lord, that you would show us our desperate need for you. And Lord, I pray that a lot, that we would see how desperately we need you, not just at the beginning of our walk with you, but daily, every minute. So I ask, Lord, that today you would show us a deeper understanding of who we would be apart from you and who we are in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, happy Reformation Sunday, and some of you may not even realize that it is Reformation Sunday, so maybe I should start off by reminding you that today is one of the most significant Sundays of the year, Reformation Sunday. Uh, Of course, we're remembering the, the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation from 500 years ago, and if you look at the church overall today, worldwide, I think you understand how significant it is that we celebrate Reformation Sunday on the last Sunday of every October. It's because the Reformation is needed as badly today, if not worse today, more desperately today, than it was needed 500 years ago. So if you're not familiar with what the Reformation is or what it's all about, um, I, I want to start, I guess, by encouraging you to learn about it, to, to understand why we are Protestant. And of course, by Protestant, you're, you're implying, you're, you're saying that we're protesting something. So I would encourage you to understand exactly what we are protesting and to look at the history of the Reformation. But The Cliff Notes version of it goes something like this. 500 years ago, this year, in fact, uh, 500 years ago on October 31st, just in a couple days here, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther posted 95 theses or or complaints, uh, objections, really, uh, against the Roman Catholic Church, and he posted them on the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany. And you see, the, the door of the cathedral in that day and age was kind of the, the 16th century equivalent of what Twitter or Facebook is today. You know, if, if you want to start a discussion about something, if you want to complain about something, what do you do? You, you, you post it on Twitter, right? Or you post it on, on Facebook. And so in the 16th century, if you wanted to start a discussion about something, if you wanted to, to uh, publicly complain about something, you posted a thesis. Uh, one... But Martin Luther uh, didn't just have have one. He had 95 of them, 95 complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. And that is basically what what officially started off, what kicked off the reformation of the church that would come to be known as the Reformation. That's what Reformation means, reformation. See, Christ and the apostles founded the church. They, They formed the church. The church fathers conformed the church to their teachings. The Roman Catholic Church deformed the church, and the Reformers reformed it. This was not a point in time when 
theologians and philosophers and pastors and church leaders all got together and had a group think and said, you know, let, let's figure out a new way to do this. Let's figure out a new expression for our faith. Let's invent some new doctrines. That is not what happened there at all. No. See, the problem was that the church had, had drifted so far away from orthodox biblical doctrine that it was really no longer recognizable if you were looking at it and comparing it to the church as Jesus had founded it. And over the centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had just made one compromise after another after another. Now, if you were here for for Reformation Sunday last year, you might remember that there was a very good reason that the Roman Catholic Church had drifted so far away from Orthodox biblical Christianity. And it was because the Roman Catholic Church had adopted the position that the traditions and, and the judgments of fallible man, uh, specifically of, of Roman Catholic church leaders and bishops and so on, they decided that those things were as authoritative, they were equal in authority to Scripture. So they denied Scripture alone. Now, how was the church going to recover the identity that it had drifted away from? How, how was it going to recover the identity that it, that it had slowly, slowly lost over the years? Well, it, it started with the doctrine of the Reformation that we discussed last year. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. Scripture alone is supremely authoritative. It is plenary. It is sufficient to inform the faith and practice of the Christian religion, of Christianity. And that was a doctrine that was affirmed by the early church. And it was a doctrine that it had been lost by the time 500 years ago rolled around, by the time the Reformation period rolled around. It needed to be recovered, rediscovered, and it was. That's one of the things that took place in the Reformation. But given how, how far the church had drifted away from biblical orthodoxy, you have to imagine that recovering the doctrine of, of sola scriptura was only the beginning. It, it couldn't just stop with that. It was only the beginning. The Bible laid the, fa- the foundation for the return to a whole set of biblical doctrines that had been lost. And one of the most important doctrines, if not the most important doctrine, that needed to be recovered or, or, or rediscovered was the doctrine of salvation. I mean, it starts with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. You have to, you have, to have some order, right? You have to have some understanding of how we're saved. And the Bible has that. But it had been lost. And it started with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. What, uh, what they referred to as sola gratia. Sola gratia. Now you might wonder, where did that doctrine come from? If these guys didn't invent it, if the reformers didn't invent it or come up with it, where did it originally come from? Well, that brings us back to the early church. You may have heard of a famous theologian in the 4th and 5th century named Augustine. Anybody heard of St. Augustine? Yeah? Everybody heard of St. Augustine? Okay, good. He was uh, a person who, who started off his, his life as a very, very worldly, very carnal person. He pursued carnal pleasure for many years. His mother was a Christian, uh, but her faith didn't rub off on him, at least not immediately. He would indulge himself for many years in a life of sin and carnal excess, and eventually he would go on to become 
a student of philosophy in the city of Milan. He loved philosophy. And while he was in Milan, he studied the Bible a little bit, but he really wasn't captivated by it. He really wasn't that interested in it. It wasn't until he was convicted of his utter sinfulness under the preaching and teaching of St. Ambrose uh, that he converted. And the story's told of how he ran into a garden with a copy of Paul's epistles, just convicted under Ambrose's preaching of, of his own utter sinfulness. And he threw himself down on the grass under a fig tree where he heard a child singing in Latin, Take up and read. Take up and read. It was a song. And she was singing it. And so he started reading the 13th chapter of the book of Romans. And he repented and believed in Christ on the spot. And of course, he'd go on to become extremely influential in his day and age. Being somebody who had studied philosophy, he, he loved to draw things out. He loved to, to study thought and to articulate thought. And so he went on to become a major, major church leader in his time. And one of the great accomplishments of St. Augustine was to discover and articulate the doctrine of original sin. Now I say discover, and that's a very important uh, word for us to, to use there instead of invent, uh, because he didn't invent the doctrine of original sin. He discovered it. It was already there. He, did, he didn't invent it any more than Columbus invented North America or Sir Isaac Newton invented gravity. They didn't invent those things. They discovered them. And yeah, the doctrine of original sin, it was there all along. And Augustine was really the one to discover it. And it led him to understand that the life that he had lived, in which he was loving sin, in which he was committing sin after sin after sin, he wasn't just somebody who sinned, he was a sinner. And that it was man's nature to not only sin, but to love sin and to hate God. And once Augustine came to terms with the truth of this doctrine, he came to see that there was no way for a person to be saved except by the grace of God alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. And that's where you find the history of the doctrine of sola gratia. It begins with the biblical doctrine of original sin. Man's total and complete inability to save himself or to choose what is truly good for himself. The utter sinfulness of man. The fact that sin taints every single thing that we do by nature. Because we are not just people who sin, we are sinners who sin by nature. And this is exactly what Scripture teaches. Augustine wasn't just exegeting his life you know, he, he wasn't just talking about his life because of his experience. No, he saw his life reflected in the Scriptures. And he saw that this is exactly what Scripture teaches. Listen very carefully to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. Now keep in mind that as Paul says these things, he's actually quoting Scripture himself. He's quoting stuff from the Old Testament. So Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18 says this. It says, as it is written... In Scripture, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and mercy and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you see what Paul's doing there, he's very carefully saying that the whole man is corrupt. He starts with our lips. Our lips are filthy. Our lips are full of curses. And then he goes on to our feet. So from our head to our feet, we are desperately, desperately wicked by nature. And when a passage teaches something like this, and, and, and it uses absolute or, or universal, comprehensive terms like all, none, no one, not even one, and without, in, in rapid succession in, like this passage does, it's hard to imagine how anybody could possibly read this and walk away with the idea that maybe there are some exceptions. Maybe they're the exception. No, this passage sums up humanity's condition by nature. By nature, we are sinners. And by nature, we love sin. And we are unable to free ourselves. We are unable to do good. This is the doctrine of original sin. So, back in Augustine's day still, enter the scene comes a man named Pelagius. Pelagius disagreed with the doctrine of original sin. And, and he argued that humanity was, by nature, not necessarily good, but not necessarily bad. Humanity was, by nature, just kind of morally neutral. And as such, he argued that man's nature didn't prevent him from doing good. All he had to do was choose it. And it also didn't cause him to rebel against God or to hate God. For Pelagius, we had the freedom to choose one way or the other. We could choose to love God or we could choose to hate God. But it was all the individual's decision. It was completely up to the individual. Pelagius was eventually, by the way, ruled to be a heretic at the Council of Carthage in 418. And the denial of original sin that he presented came to be known as a heresy. And if you know anything about heresies, a lot of them, most of them, are named after their originator. In this case, it came to be known as Pelagianism. Pelagianism is the idea that original sin is wrong. That man is morally neutral. That man is capable of doing what is good. That's Pelagianism. That's a heresy. Now, fast forward back to Luther's day and age. We're back in the 16th century now. The Roman Catholic Church no longer affirmed the doctrine of original sin. Instead of continuing to denounce Pelagianism as false, as, as heretical, the church affirmed the views, at least to an extent, that Pelagius had tried to advance, that man was capable of doing good, that man by nature was capable of seeking God on his own volition and choosing to be saved. And Luther worked to recover what Augustine, so many years prior, so many centuries prior, had established and which the Roman Catholic Church had abandoned. The idea that man was incapable of saving himself and that if salvation 
were available, if salvation were possible, it had to be by the grace of God alone. If someone is saved, it is sola gratia. It is by the grace of God alone. Now what's the most important word there? Alone. The word alone is the key word there. Just just like with Scripture. It's one thing to say that Scripture is authoritative. It's quite another to say that Scripture alone is authoritative. See, the Roman Catholic Church would agree that Scripture is authoritative, but without the word alone, the doctrine loses its power. It's like me saying, you know, I, I, I love you, Christina, to my wife, right? But I also love 20 other women. Where is the power in me saying I love you to her? It's gone, right? Same way. Same way with Scripture. Same way with the doctrine of Scripture. And see, the Roman Catholic Church would say that they agree that we must be saved by grace. They would say that they agree that without the grace of God, we are completely hopeless. But they don't believe that we're saved by grace alone. And thus, they deflate the doctrine of its true saving power and significance. Remember that as Protestants, we are protesting something. Just like everybody else in our day and age, right? But we're protesting the same thing that they were protesting 500 years ago. So what are we protesting? Well, a few things. But one of the things that we're protesting is the idea that there is any goodness within us that would warrant grace, that would deserve grace, that would merit grace, and we also protest the idea that it's possible for fallen man to to choose it for himself or to deserve it. We protest the denial of the doctrine of original sin. There's one specific place in Scripture that comes to mind for me when I think of the doctrine of original sin being placed right in conjunction with the doctrine of sola gratia. And with that said, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Here we'll see that there is an undeniable connection between these two very important doctrines, between the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. We start off by reading verses 1 to 3. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 say this. Keep in mind, Ephesians chapter 1 is all about God. It's all about the glory and the goodness of God. And we start chapter 2 with this. And you and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a dark passage, isn't it? And if you, if you think about what this is saying, it is very different from the cultural slogans that you hear about humanity out there today, like that people are basically good, or that people, that everybody is a child of God. Now keep in mind that in verse 1, when Paul says, and you, he's addressing Christians. 
He's writing to Christians. He's writing to, to the church in Ephesus and in Asia Minor. He's addressing the group referred to in chapter 1 as the elect, those who were predestined unto salvation by the Father, those whom Christ redeemed and granted remission of sins by the shedding of His blood and by the imputation of His perfect righteousness, and whom the Holy Spirit sealed in the faith. Ephesians chapter 1 shows that salvation is, is triune. Each person in the Trinity plays a role in our salvation. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. We're covering it on Sunday evenings, by the way, uh, if you're interested in, in hearing about it. But Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to born-again believers. And so we have to understand that what he says is true of them is also true of us. And so what does he say about them? I mean, he puts it in pretty simple and, and, and straightforward terms here. He tells us exactly what man's natural condition is. We're not born as children of God. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to you know, the, these popular slogans that you'll hear, people are not basically good. We're born as children of wrath. Describing the unconverted, unregenerate sinner, Thomas Watson said this, he said, quote, the deluded sinner is like the slave that digs in the mine, hews in the quarry, or tugs at the oar. He's at the command of Satan as the donkey at the command of the driver. But for Christians, for Christians, this is a condition that has changed. This is no longer true of us. Paul says this is who you once were. You can see the way that Paul speaks. He uses the word were in verse 1. He uses uh, once were in verses 2 and 3. So it's, it's all in the past tense for Christians. We weren't just spiritually ill. We weren't just spiritually malnourished or spiritually distant from God or dying even. No, we were dead. We were spiritually dead. We were as dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically. And with the person spiritually dead, what hope of life or salvation do we have? We have as much hope spiritually as somebody as dead as Lazarus has physically. Dead people don't respond. Dead people don't have desires. They don't have a will. Dead people don't make decisions. Dead people don't choose to do what's good. They're dead. Their will is gone. And that, Paul says, is the default human spiritual condition of man. So what does the spiritually dead person do? He tells us. Look what he says in verse 2. He starts off by saying, they follow the course of this world. What does that mean? Well, when he's talking about the world, we have to understand that he's talking about the system of man that defies and opposes God. He's talking about, he, there's a contrast between God's people and the world. That's the world that he's talking about here. It means that like the rest of the world, they're immoral. They, they, they defy God. They resist God. They hate God. They're selfish, just like everybody else in the world. 
And here's what we must know. You cannot live like the world. You cannot follow the course of the world and also follow Jesus. You can't. And we're going to see in a minute here why, but it's impossible for the same reason that you can't have a, a, you know, water, for example, flowing in two directions, the same, the same particles of water flowing in the same direction at the same time in the same sense. Christ will take us one way and the course of the world is going the other way. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, he said that Christ, quote, gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And so the question that that should force us to ask ourselves is am I living in a way that reflects what Paul says in Galatians 1.4? Am I living in a way that reflects the fact that I have been delivered from the present evil age? If spiritually dead people aren't following Jesus, then what or whom are they following? Verse 2 tells us that they are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's the prince of the power of the air? It's Satan. It's Satan. What is a son of disobedience? It's somebody who lives in constant disobedience. It's somebody who refuses to obey what God has commanded. So somebody who's who's spiritually dead, they won't even realize who they're following, by the way. But this is the truth that Scripture presents. They are not just aimlessly floating. No, they are following the course of the world. They are following Satan. And where is he leading them? In the direction of disobedience. Disobedience to whom? To God. This is why sin, this is why unrepentant sin is a very, very serious matter. But this is fallen man's nature by birth that we're talking about. This is who we were. This is who every single one of us once was. Just like the rest of mankind, to use what Paul said in, uh, in verse 3. See, fallen man isn't just sinful. We don't just sin. At the very core of human existence is the reality that we are sinners by nature. We were born spiritually dead. We were born separated from the source of life. Or if you like the illustration from Genesis, the tree of life that Revelation tells us will once again be in the presence of one day. If we understand the clear testimony of Scripture, we agree with Augustine. We agree with Martin Luther. We agree with all of the other Reformers who recovered this doctrine. We understand that by nature we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We understand that by nature we're slaves of sin, Romans 6.6. We understand that by nature we were born enemies of God, Romans 5.10. We understand that humanity loves the darkness and hates the light, John 3.19. And we understand that every person is born as a child of wrath. So what can we do? That's our condition. What are we supposed to do about it? Well, 
Look at what humanity's done. Consider for a moment the things that humanity has done to try to fix this. They invent new religions. So Buddhists invent the idea of following this eightfold path that involves reincarnation and and working and working and, and punishing yourself until eventually you reach the state of nirvana where you don't have any desires one way or the other anymore, which, by the way, is logically impossible. If you're trying to reach nirvana, you obviously care about something, so you can't reach the point where you don't care. Right? Hindus have the idea of, of karma and, and reincarnation in which you work in this life to improve your conditions in the next life where you'll once again work to improve your conditions in your life after that and so on and so forth. The cycle goes on forever. The Jews strive to perfectly uphold the law, earning salvation by their own works. Muslims follow the Muslim code of law where they work to try to please Allah, but even that doesn't have a guaranteed result. See, the Muslim can can work and work and work. They can work as hard as they possibly can, and they can hope for the best, and that's it. Every man-devised option is a dead-end road. It starts at death. It leads to death. It ends at death. And this is what humanity does. It doesn't turn to God. It tries to find another way in which we can earn some type of redemption by our works, by by our merit, by what we do. And they all lead to death. And we've seen some, some very important principles. We've seen that we're born with a sin nature that renders us spiritually dead. And that there is therefore nothing that we can do on our own to save ourselves, to free ourselves, or to earn or to deserve salvation. We have to understand that the thing that sets sets Christianity apart from every other world religion, from every man-made institution, is that we recognize that our works won't cut it we realize that there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. We realize that our greatest need isn't for self-achievement. Our greatest, effort, our greatest efforts will earn us absolutely nothing. We recognize these, these, these things. We recognize that our greatest need is for God to grant us grace. And that there's no other way. There's no other way. Listen to what Paul says in verses 4 to 6. Let's continue 4 to 6. We've seen man's condition. Paul says, but God, contrast, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So verses 1-3 to showed us very clearly that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We, are, we were born slaves to sin. We were following the carnal fleshly desires of the world. We were following Satan. 
We had no hope. We were spiritually dead. But God, God did something about it. The Father elected us. He predestined us. The Son redeemed us. And the Holy Spirit sealed us with the promise. God was merciful and gracious to us. And it wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we earned it. It wasn't even because we sought after it. We didn't even see our need for it. No, God did it purely out of love. It was His initiative and His initiative alone. He gave us grace. And the only explanation is it pleased Him to do so. It pleased Him to do so. Now what is grace? Don't confuse it with mercy. Because while the two terms are close, grace and mercy are not the same thing. They're close, but they're not the same thing. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And God is indeed merciful to us. We were children of wrath, and wrath was the only thing that we deserved from God. So for Him to not give us wrath is mercy. See, that's the only thing that we've earned. That's the only thing our sin has earned for us. Even the works that one might perform for the sake of earning righteousness will only earn God's wrath. Because sin so thoroughly corrupts us to the core of our being that everything we do, even our best works, are corrupted by sin. And to those who are adopted in Christ, God is indeed merciful. But what is grace? Okay, Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is giving us something. So uh, Mercy is, is uh, negative. It's taking something away. Grace is giving us something that we don't deserve. And by definition, you can't earn something that you don't deserve. As one author notes, he says, quote, the grace of God cannot be transacted like a commodity. It cannot be handled like an object. It cannot be bought or sold, worked for or earned. Indeed, it must be given it must be freely given by God Himself. End quote. And so as we consider the doctrine of original sin, we have to understand that God didn't just look down the corridor of time and, and see who would choose Him, see who would respond to Him, see who would, would be faithful to Him, because that wouldn't solve anything, would it? If we understand the doctrine of original sin, then we understand that God looking down the corridor of time and choosing those who would choose Him doesn't solve the problem, because nobody would choose Him. All of humanity is spiritually dead. Nobody has the ability, nobody has the will or the nature to do so. Humanity is, by nature, born spiritually dead. Our will was in bondage to sin. We followed the world. We followed Satan. One time in his ministry, Jesus was talking to some Jews. And he said this, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's from John 6.44. Let me say it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now you might think that when it says that, see we use the word draw like you're, you're wooing somebody, like you're trying to impress them, you're trying to bring them closer to yourself. But we need to understand that the Greek word that gets translated as draw doesn't mean to woo or to entice. 
No, it's actually a term that implies the use of, of great force. If you remember, when, when Jesus had died, and He had resurrected, but the disciples didn't, uh, hadn't seen Him yet, they didn't realize that He had risen again. And so some of the disciples went back to their previous profession of, of fishing. And so at the end of John, you, you see Peter and some others, Peter and John and you know, a few others out there on their boats, and, and they're fishing again, and they didn't catch anything all night. And Jesus comes along on the shore, and we, we read this in John chapter 21, verse 6. John writes, He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That word haul is the same Greek word that we see translated as draw in John 6.44. Now, does it sound like Peter and his friends were, were trying to entice fish to, to the nets? Were they trying to entice them or woo them into the boat? No. They were trying to force them in. They were trying to haul them in. No one can come to Christ unless the Father hauls them to Christ. It's not a question of desire. Dead people don't desire anything. It's a question of nature. No one can come to Christ for the same reason that no one can shoot a spider web out of your wrist. It makes for a good movie and a good superhero, but it's, we all understand that the reason you know, he's a superhero is because nobody could really do that. Why can't we shoot a web out of our wrist? Because it's not in our nature to do so. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, quote, God Himself supplies the necessary condition to come to Jesus. That's why it's sola gratia, by grace alone, that we are saved. See, there's, there's no other way. There's no, there's no other way. There really is no other way. The only way to deny the doctrine of sola gratia is to do what the Roman Catholic Church did by the time the reformers like Luther and John Knox and John Calvin and other great reformers entered the scene. You must deny the doctrine of original sin. If you affirm the doctrine of original sin, if you understand and affirm the doctrine of original sin, you understand that sola gratia, salvation by grace alone, is the only solution. It's our only hope. more important than agreeing with Augustine or the Reformers. You must agree with what Scripture says. That's why sola scriptura is the basis of all these other doctrines that were recovered, that were rediscovered in the Reformation. See, to a large extent, the modern church, the modern Protestant church, has completely dropped this doctrine. The, the, the church today has, by and large, abandoned the idea of salvation by grace alone. Now they would say, okay, everybody needs grace, we get that. But they're only adopting the position that Rome had, that the Roman Catholic Church had, in Luther's day. That yes, we need grace, but a person must choose it. So it's not grace alone. I went to seminary. In my seminary, we were given kind of an illustration by the main teacher there. We were taught that salvation was like a life preserver. You know, grace was involved in salvation, but it wasn't grace alone. Have you ever heard it illustrated this way? The life preserver illustration? Like we were drowning in a sea of sin and God threw us a life preserver. But that illustration is a denial of original sin. It's a denial of sola gratia. 
Because the assumption in that illustration is that first of all, we're, we're able by our nature to respond to the life preserver being thrown to us, and secondly, that we, that we would want it. The problem with that illustration is that if you went out into the middle of the sea, let's say, let's say that there was a, a, a major shipwreck out in the middle of the sea, and you were able you know, to, to find the GPS coordinates, and so you used your GPS, you used your, your cell phone to go out into the middle of the sea where the shipwreck had been, and you find hundreds of dead bodies floating around. And you throw out a life preserver. What are you going to catch? Maybe some debris. But nobody, nobody is going to swim for a life preserver because they're all dead. So if grace is something that gives us what we don't deserve, what is it that we didn't deserve that God gives us? It's a pretty long list. Redemption, forgiveness, adoption, Life, eternal life. He opened the eyes of our hearts, removing the veil that once blinded us so that we might behold our need for salvation and the glory of Christ as the solution to that need. We were given a new nature. We were given a new heart. A heart that could respond to God. A heart that no longer rebelled against God. A heart that no longer hated God. A heart that would desire the things that God desires. Even when that means forsaking personal gain. Even when it means forsaking the things that once seemed so important in this world. See, if you're in Christ... If you are a Christian, if you have life in Christ, you were saved by grace alone. Grace alone. Sola gratia. If you responded to God, that was grace. If you love God, that's grace. If you desire to do right in God's eyes, that is grace. Because on your own, you wouldn't be able to say any of these things about yourself you would still be dead in your sins and your transgressions. Now you might be wondering, why would God even do this? Why would God show somebody like me grace? You, know, you might be thinking, I, I, I spent such a long time rebelling against God and defying God and doing things my own way. Why would God show mercy and grace to somebody like me? And that's a really good question. <laughs> the reason is, the reason that this is a good question is because it helps us to understand at least part of our purpose in life as people who have been redeemed, as people who have been adopted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Keep in mind, keep that in mind as we see what Paul says next, as he explains why God granted us grace. Look at verse 7 with me. So that. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There you go. Pretty simple, straightforward answer. That's why he gives grace. Here's, that's why he saves sinners. To show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward sinners like you and me who deserve nothing but wrath. 
And interestingly, the Greek word that gets translated as show here is actually a legal term. So you, you, you kind of picture a, a court case you know, going on in front of a judge, and we are God's exhibit A, B, C, something. We're the proof. We're the evidence in the case for God's great kindness and mercy. That's one of your purposes in life. To be exhibit A in the case for God's great kindness and mercy. So to whom is God showing this? Well, He shows His kindness and He shows mercy to those He redeems. But one of the purposes that you and I have as Christians, as the church, is to be a living demonstration, a living picture, a living illustration of God's grace to an unbelieving world, both now and in the age to come. Let's continue, verses 8 and 9. This is a very important part of the passage. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In 2001, Reader's Digest asked Muhammad Ali what his faith meant to him. And he said this. This this was his response. He said, quote, It means a ticket to heaven. One day, we're all going to die, and God's going to judge us. Our good deeds and our bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. End quote. That's exactly how most people think about salvation. That your, your good deeds and your bad deeds are on these scales, and whichever one is the greatest, that's where you're going. If your bad outweighs the good, you're going to hell. And if your good outweighs your bad, you're going to heaven. That is a works-based salvation. That is looking to yourself and trusting in what you have done to earn salvation. But the testimony of Scripture tells us that this is just the foolishness of man. If we were going to invent a way to be saved, that's, that's what we'd come up with. That would be the best we could do. And it seems very logical. But it's just the fallenness of man's foolishness. We aren't saved by our good works. We aren't saved by our efforts. Because if you would be, think about this. If you could take any credit for your salvation, who would get the glory? You would. You would be the one to get the glory. No, we have nothing to boast of in ourselves. We're saved by grace, and we are saved by grace alone. You cannot do enough good works to save yourself. It will never outweigh the bad, because honestly, the good side will be empty. Your good works will never, ever outweigh the bad. Only the work of Christ was sufficient to satisfy God's just wrath against sin. And these two verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, these two verses make it clear that the only thing that you have done for your salvation is provide the sin that made your salvation necessary. That's all you add to it. By grace you have been saved through faith. That is the gift. Grace is a gift. Faith is a gift. And it's all of grace. The bottom line is this. Salvation is a gift to be received. It is not a reward for us to earn. 
Truly we are saved. Sola gratia, by, by grace alone. We affirm the doctrine of sola gratia, salvation by grace alone, and we protest the denial of original sin. Great. We protest the idea that there's anything that we can do to qualify ourselves to receive grace. Great. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a start. And that's a good start. That's a, that's a good thing. But the question ultimately is, so what? We're saved by grace alone. So what? So we must cling to it. So we must affirm what it really means, what it entails. So we must live our lives in light of this truth. And that's exactly what Paul leads to. This is the application that Paul draws from it. Look at verse 10 with me. And we'll end with this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The application is to remember that you weren't saved by works, but you were saved for them. You weren't saved by them, you were saved for them. The application, therefore, is to live a life in joyful submission unto God, walking in His ways, walking in obedience, confident that you are a son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The application is to do, to do more than just know intellectually that you've been saved by grace, but for you to live it out and to experience God's grace. The truth is that God loves His people the same way He loves His only Son, Jesus Christ who shed His blood to ransom us, dying in our place for our transgressions, being raised again on the third day to prove the completion of our redemption. God's love for you isn't based on what a good person you are. God's love for you isn't motivated by your performance. It's based purely on His own goodness, His own mercy, His own grace. And here's what you need to know. If God gave you grace unto life, unto salvation, then He will also give you grace every step of the journey. Including good works. The good works that you have been redeemed for, not by. He'll give you the grace to do those things. He'll give you the grace to obey. As Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, quote, if He gives you the grace to believe, He'll give you the grace to live a holy life. So when you think or when you sing about grace, when you hear the song Amazing Grace, which we've heard so many millions of times probably that it, it kind of becomes trite, don't let it. Don't lose sight of how amazing grace really is. So when you think about it or when you sing about it, I, I pray that you would see it this way as, as this amazing gift that was given to you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of God's goodness and kindness. And so in light of God's grace, 
I urge you today to live your life as a sacrificial gift unto God. A living sacrifice unto God. A living and breathing picture of the grace that saved you. Of the mercy and the goodness and the righteousness of God. That you may grow through these works in the likeness of Christ and that God may be glorified in you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for Your unfathomable kindness and Your wisdom to save us. Father, we confess to You that we are not just people who sin, but that we are sinners. But we also thank You that we are sinners who have been shown grace. Something that we could never deserve. Something that we could never earn. And we thank You for it. And I pray, Lord, that it would inspire a deeper sense of awe in every single one of us as we consider how desperate our situation was, how hopeless our situation was, and as we remember that nothing is impossible for you. What is impossible with man is not impossible with you. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that saved us. And we ask for grace daily in our walk with you. Give us grace to seek you daily to walk in obedience to You and to glorify You through the things that we do in our everyday lives, whether that's our regular work or our family time or whatever we do, Father. We ask that You would give us grace to obey and to glorify You. In Christ's name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.